you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. In fact, you can uh, go to your table of contents and find the book of John. And once you've located that, uh, that book, find where it starts and then go with me to the 16th chapter. I'll be uh, speaking and reading uh, verses 25 through 33. As I stated last week, I, I proposed a question through a poll uh, question on Facebook and, and then had a handout on Ash Wednesday to get some feedback on some topical sermons around the question of uh, what does the Bible say about X? Last Sunday, uh, the, the number one answer that came back was regarding mental illness, specifically uh, around the subject matter of what does the Bible say about depression and anxiety? Uh, and, and the second highest is, is something that I, I would like to deal with today, and it's kind of where I'm going to pull from um, out of Scripture today. So John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33 state, and we're reading out of the NIV. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask my name, and I'm not saying that I... Will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need anyone to ask you any questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. And Jesus said, do you now believe? A time is coming and in fact has already come when you will be scattered each to your home, that you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have, might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I chose to do this through the season of Lent because many of us give up something to remind us of Christ's suffering. However, there are things that people suffer through and struggle with the other 325 days of the year rather than just the 40 days that you and I set aside to give something up during Lent. So this morning, I want to tackle the subject of what does the Bible say about grieving? The passage that we're reading from comes from a moment when Jesus pulls back the curtain and gives the disciples an opportunity to tangibly grasp just what Jesus was doing. It gives us an opportunity to understand the authenticity of who Jesus was and to prepare, them, and to prepare the disciples for what was about to come. Jesus admittedly acknowledges in verse 25 that he hasn't come right out and said the words that he's Messiah. He hasn't come out and said that he is the Son of God, but that is all about to change. And Jesus, he just gets real with his disciples, and he explains to them the organic nature of what God was doing through his life and what he was doing in the midst of them. Jesus was preparing his disciples for Calvary. So often when we talk about the subject of grieving, we tend to concentrate this emotional behavior as a direct result of someone that deals with death. So I'm going to spend some time discussing that part, but dealing with death is only a portion of, of why we grieve. So let's dive in. What does the Bible say about grieving? Number one, your loss is not unique. 
Your loss is not unique. Matthew chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. In our text, Jesus was doing something that I've already highlighted earlier. He was preparing his disciples for the events that would take place leading up to and at the moment that would take place at Calvary. Church, you can't avoid grieving, but you can prepare to avoid the destruction that grief can impose in your life when it's left unchecked. So let's just tackle the subject of death for a moment. There are different ways that many of us prepare for death. We use the old cliche that we get our house in order, don't we? Now, on a spiritual side, we prepare for heaven. We, we prepare for heaven by making a profession of faith and a confession of faith uh, in Christ and following Jesus. But our mortal self and, and our humanness, we also, we, we, we prepare for death too. We, we make a will or we create a trust. Uh, we'll even make arrangements down at the funeral home or pay our premiums on our life insurance. You know, we're more apt to prepare ourselves for death but we fail to prepare those in our life who will experience our death and who will mourn for us after we have passed. Church, prepare your family for your death. Talk to your spouse about it. Talk to your kids about it. Talk to your, grand, your grandkids, your, your siblings, and your, and your friends about your death. Oh, now, Pastor, that's morbid, and I don't want to get into that. That's just doom and gloom, and I just want to enjoy my time with my family and my friends and all that. Oh, let me just ask this. Who would you rather have a conversation about your death? Especially if your pastor has only been around your community or your church for three years, like myself, or, 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 you know, or maybe they've been there for less than that, who doesn't know your kids, who don't know the grandkids or your siblings that live out of state, who will pro the pastor might have maybe three or four hours with them. Who would you rather talk to them about your death? Don't you think it would be better coming from you? Listen, you're not going to make it out of this world alive. So prepare your people for the moment. And, and, and because of that, their life, uh, pre prepare them for your death. Because uh, their life, after you leave this world, uh, because by doing so, you will help them grieve your loss in a more healthy way. You know, we all deal with grief differently. And it affects us differently. But the reality of it is, is that each one of us will grieve in some way. But you're not the only one who grieves. This is not unique about you. Now, Satan would have you believe that your situation is different than others. And Peter talks about this a little bit. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, uh, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking, to some, looking for someone to devour. The devil will tell you that no one can understand what you're going through when you experience loss. He'll tell you that, that no one else and, and, and that you, this loss is all your own. Old Slewfoot will try to entrap you and make you think that you're the only one who has ever experienced what you're experiencing. Satan will tell you that you will never get over your loss. However, just as I said last week, Satan is the father of liars. Don't let Satan abuse your loss. Don't let the devil uh, use the death of your loved one to gain a foothold in your life, to steal your hope, to steal your happiness, and steal your joy. Don't let him encamp in your life by making you think that, you, uh, that this is all on you. 
that this is something that is totally unique about you. What does the Bible say about grieving? Well, number two, you are not alone. You are not alone. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, it's the same passage I just used, and we're still talking about Satan. Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Church, you are not alone. There is help. There is a way out. But if you neglect to get help, you allow Satan to get a win in your life. Grieving isn't just about losing someone you love because there are other people that have experienced loss too. There's other people in the body of Christ that has experienced losing a spouse, that has experienced losing a child, that has experienced in losing a, a parent. And, and, and Peter's reaffirming this to us. Stand firm in your faith. And know that there are others in the family of believers throughout the world who have undergone the same kind of thing. But grieving just isn't about losing someone to death. Grieving takes place when people lose a job, when one of our friends betray us, when our father or our mother is diagnosed with cancer, or when a spouse commits adultery, when we even lose our sight or our ability to drive, and even losing our independence. I recently read that over half of the patients in senior living communities never see their family in a given year. People that are in our nursing care facilities, they grieve heavily uh, on their own loss of their own independence. But most of all, the one thing that they, they grieve the most is the loss of relationships, not just with their family, but not just with maybe their bridge club or, or their social groups, but the main thing that people grieve the most that are Christ followers, they grieve the loss of relationship that they have with their church and the people in their church. And it's a reality that the body of Christ is failing to attend to. When was the last time you visited someone that is shut in in their home? When was the last time that you went to the nursing home and visited someone that was your Sunday school teacher or maybe uh, played uh, the piano or, or even an organ like Charlotte has uh, in, in this church for so many years? Folks think, well, it's the pastor's job to do it. <laughs> no, it's not. It's your job. Shepherds don't bear sheep. Sheep bear sheep. <laughs> the pastor's job is to disciple and shepherd the flock. I told you from day one, if you bring people into the body of Christ, if you bring your friends and your family to church, I promise I will present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will shepherd them and I will disciple them. But it's up to the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ's responsibility to grow the church and encourage one another. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burden so to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, well, well, Pastor, what's the law of Christ? Well, the, the law of Christ is to, to love the Lord with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> How are you doing with that? When we fail to follow the law of Christ, the love of Christ cannot be dispensed into the lives that need it the most. 
And that limits uh, the, the creativity and that cre- limits the movement of God from being able to move into those who are grieving the loss of their independence or grieving the loss of a loved one that is diagnosed with cancer or grieving the fact that their spouse has cheated on them. We're not the only ones who experience grief, though. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Church, the Holy Spirit of God grieves too. Do you know what causes God's Spirit to grieve? It's sin. If you identify with being a Christian and you've been baptized and you've crossed the line of faith, you've made a profession of faith in Christ, you you have sold out your life and given uh, him your all, your life should look differently than those in the world. Wesley taught that he believed that a mature Christian could reach a state where the love of God reigns supreme in our heart, where we can uh, be made, although that we can't be uh, physically perfect as God is, but because we live in a sinful world, but we can be made perfect in his love. Wesley also teaches us about social holiness. This is essential that as brothers and sisters in Christ that we are to meet and worship with one another, to grow in Christ together in the church so that we can uh, so that we can know the will of God for our life and the life that he destines us to live by taking on a uh, holy living and living it in our lives and in our community. A few weeks ago I I counseled a spouse, a person who is married and and whose spouse had cheated on them. And this person found out right before the holidays. And and to be perfectly honest, I never expected anything like this to happen to this couple. Never. This couple were leaders in their church and 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 were friends of mine. And and you, despite all despite all of that, one of them chose to leave their marriage by stepping out and committing adultery, and to live with that other person. And the person that shared this with me was so broken, they're so wounded that their their grief encompassed me. I, I could feel it. I, I could sense the heaviness. I, I could feel the devastation. I too felt uh, ha- how they were holding on by a thread. And, and that thread that this person was holding on to, that, 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 that last line of, of hope, that, that last line of, 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 of dependency was their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When a spouse cheats on a spouse, the victim grieves. Sexual sin is a lightning rod uh, for controversy in the church, but few pastors and churches say or do anything about it. Oh, I will. I mean, if you're going to have a special call general conference and call out one thing, when are we going to call out clergy who are living in sin, clergy who are committing adultery, committing fornication, while there are even people in their own congregation sitting in those pews doing the same exact thing. Integrity is tough. Living a holy life is challenging. Janelle and I were talking and, and, and we, we were sharing together and had this thought that you know, we're probably one of the rarest engaged couples in the United States. I mean, we're probably the strangest ones. 
And that's probably because, you know, she chose me, right? Um, but um, the thing is, is that Janelle and I have never slept together. We have never had sex. I've never even been to first base. She's never spent a night in my house. When she comes and stays for the weekend, she stays at Larry and Cindy's house so that we can be accountable there and they they were have been in Florida, uh, but they know the time uh, uh, the time stamp uh, when their daughter comes home every night after being with me because their security system records it. But we made uh, that commitment to one another not because the book of discipline says it's against the rules, not because it 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 specifically says that uh, pastors are to be um, celibate in singleness. But we chose to do that because the Bible is our rule of faith and Christ alone is Lord. And God's word says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse number seven, consecrate yourself and be holy as I am holy. Let me be very clear. If you are not married and you are shacking up with someone who is married, you are living in sin. If you are living with someone who is not your spouse, whether it be a man and a woman or a man and man or a woman with woman, you are living in sin. That's fornication. You shouldn't be in leadership. You shouldn't teach Sunday school. And if I find out about it and you're in my congregation, I'm going to sit you down and take you out of that role. Because you're not just bringing grief to your own life and those in your family's lives, but you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God and it affects the church and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin is what separates us from God. And when there is unforgiven sin, it can create a barrier. And it has no business in the body of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. We make a mockery of our baptism when we knowingly and willingly justify our sinful choices and claim grace to cover them. Oh, it's socially acceptable, but, but if you say that you're a Christ follower and you say that you've been baptized and you say that you're a Christian, shouldn't your life stack up to that? Shouldn't we have the understanding that if you're a Christian, you have to remember that you've been called out of the world. You've been called out of sin. You're a city sitting upon a hill that cannot be hidden. You've been set apart. You've been bought with the price through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been called to a holy priesthood. When Jesus was praying to the Father, listen to what he said. John chapter 17, verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's where we get the phrase that many of us Christians use by being in, that we're to be in the world and not of the world. Jesus is saying that, yes, we are physically in the world, but we who have surrendered our life to Christ, we who have crossed the line of faith, we who have made a profession of faith, 
have made Jesus Christ not just Savior, but have made Jesus Lord of our life, have been called to live a life separate from the world, a life of holiness. Jesus goes back and quotes that same scripture and says, Be holy as I am holy. Wesley had it. He, he grasped that for us. He knows that we are uh, uh, imperfect beings. Wesley understood that. And because of that, he understood that the only thing that could engage us to, to live a holy life is through the love of God. Every time we selfishly justify our sin, it breaks the very heart of the God, and, uh, of the God that loves us, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and my sins, so that you and I could be set free from the bondage of sin, so that you and I could have an opportunity to experience what uh, uh, Nicodemus was struggling with an understanding of being born again, a new life, a new way of living uh, through Christ. You're not alone, so stop living like you are. You can eliminate much of the grieving in your life by following uh, the law of Christ, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love God with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let our focus be on him. Blessing.